Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, crisp fall day. We thank you for all you're doing here at Horizon and in our lives. Pray that in whatever we do, that we just build our life upon your love. In your name we pray, amen. My grandmother grew up in a log cabin with uh, nine siblings on a dirt road in Kentucky. We have a picture of her. Isn't she cute? She's next to my grandfather there. He kind of looks like a used car salesman. Um, that was kind of his personality. But my grandma, she was a real cutie, wasn't she? Um, she as soon as she could leave the farm, she did. So she only got a sixth grade education. And as soon as she could, she headed up to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and uh, got a job in a factory to get away from her Kentucky upbringing. As I was growing up, she would occasionally say something wild. She always had this wild country advice, you know, and she would say something crazy, and she would always follow it up with this challenge. That's in your Bible. That's in your Bible. That's in your Bible. And it was some outlandish, crazy thing that was most certainly not in the Bible, but she hadn't read it. And she knew by saying that, most people hadn't read it either. And by saying that, most people would be like, oh, I guess that's a good thing to go by. Like, I guess that's true. Um, throwing around the Bible as support for her wild advice was a safe bet. Most people didn't challenge her. Now, being the clever and annoying teenager that I was, I started responding to her with a zinger of my own. She would say some wild advice, and then she'd say, that's in your Bible. And I would say, rape and murder are in the Bible. Are you suggesting we do those two? And she would go, oh. Alex, you know, and she got all mad at me. Um, as you can tell, I haven't changed much from being a teenager, right? Now, as absurd as this story is, you're like, why is he sharing this? Why do we care? You know, why are you showing me cute pictures of your grandma? It raises an important issue that all of us have to resolve when we approach this book. If we are going to use this book, if we are going to try to find God through this book and use this book to change our lives, then we need to resolve how we approach this book. Christianity believes that this book, the Bible, is God-breathed. It's touched by a divine spark, that it was a unique collaboration between God and humans. And that means we give this book weight and authority and believe that God can engage us through it. But, and this is an important but, not everything in this book is a command. And if you say everything in this book is a command, every single verse is something that I am commanded to do, you're not going to use this book well. If we're going to use this book well, we need to learn the difference between prescription and description. Now, we know what a prescription is, right? You go to your doctor, you say, I have a problem, and the doctor says, you should do this. Take this medicine two times a day by mouth, or you should get this shot, or you should get this surgery. This is what you should do to correct something that's wrong. That's a prescription. That's how a lot of times we read the Bible. Every verse is a prescription. What should I do? Description is someone simply recording what happened. This is what someone did. This is what happened. It may be a good thing that we should emulate and do too, or it could be a bad thing to avoid, right? Some things in this book are prescriptions, and they say you should do this. Some things in this book are descriptions. That doesn't mean we should necessarily do them. And people all the time try to create prescriptions out of biblical descriptions. In seminary, I had a professor who liked to tell this story about a man who was always trying to look for God's will in the Bible. And so he would, like, flip it open and just point to a passage, and he's like, that's what God wants me to do. 
right? And uh, so my seminary professor would tell this story, and he says one day the man was going through a hard time, so he flipped open the Bible, pointed to a passage, and it was in Matthew 27, 5, which read, Judas went out and hanged himself. And he was like, oops, that's the wrong verse. So he flipped it open again, pointed to another one, and uh, it was Luke 10, 37, where Jesus said, go and do like him. Um, and then he was like, okay, this isn't working. He flipped it open a few more pages, stuck his finger down, and in John 13, 27, uh, were these words, what you are about to do, go and do it quickly. That's uh, ridiculous, right? Like, we don't read our Bibles like that, except we kind of do. Like, it may be not to that extreme length, but it's really not far off from how most of us were taught to read the Bible. Now, last week, we kicked off a series about relationships, and you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with relationships, Alex? I thought this was a relationship series. You're talking to me about how to read my Bible. Why are we talking about this in a relationship series? Uh, the reason why I'm talking about all this is because we're about to get into the section in Ephesians 5 where Paul talks about men and women, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And here's our big question. Does the Bible belittle women? Is it sexist? Is it biased against women? Um, I've read enough blog posts and heard enough one-off verses thrown around to know that a lot of people think it does. A lot of people in our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, they're like, let me tell you one thing about the Bible. I know it doesn't like women. I've had people tell me that. And so we need to talk about, like, what does the Bible actually say about women? And uh, so we're going to take this slight diversion from our relationship study to ask, is the Bible sexist or biased against women? How can we trust what it says about relationships if it's sexist or biased against women? Now, Christianity has a long and complicated history around the role of women, but to sum it all up, we can sum it up like this. Some people think that what the Bible says about the sexes is prescription. Like, it's a command. You should do this, you shouldn't do this. Like, this is how it should be regardless of time or culture. Some people think what the Bible says about the sexes is description. Like, it's saying, okay, this is what things were like in first century when this was written, but not necessarily how it should be across time and culture. Um, let me give you some examples of how people all the time are making prescriptive, prescriptive and descriptive choices about the text and scripture. The Bible, including the Old and New Testament, talks about slavery, right? You can, if you just do a word search, you'll find the word slavery. While the slavery depicted in the Bible was not barbaric slavery we saw in the U.S., during the Civil War, Christians in the North took verses from the Bible to say slaves should be free. Christians in the South took verses from the Bible and said, see, we should have slavery and it should continue. Political aspirations shaped how they read this book and how they manipulated it to affirm what they wanted. And we still do that today. Both used the same book to argue for opposite positions. Maybe you've had a non-Christian and you're like, listen, People on this side use the Bible to support their opinion. People on that side, like, like nobody can make any sense of this thing, right? Um, some people were taking passages to be pre prescriptive, like, well, the Bible talks about slavery, so we should have slaves. Others were taking it to be descriptive and said, okay, they had slaves in that situation, but if you actually look at the teachings of Jesus, you never could endure slavery. People who argue for a strict, prescriptive view of the Bible, and I have some friends like that, they're like, everything in the Bible is a command. Every single line is a command. Flip it open to anywhere, there's a command there. 
um, even though they say that, they still end up picking and choosing when to see something as descriptive of the time and culture and not relevant today. Let me give you a great example. How many of you did, did I kiss as you came in? Zero, I hope. I didn't even kiss my wife. I should have at least kissed her, right? I didn't kiss anybody. But Paul commands the early Christians to kiss everyone who comes into their church. In 2 Corinthians 13, 12, he's like, everyone who comes into your church should get a holy kiss. I have broken the Bible. I have failed the word of God, right? Well, I take that, and in fact, most of my friends, I know, take that to be descriptive of the time and the culture and not prescriptive, not something that all churches should do across time and culture. Um, I'm in violation of the Bible if everything is a command. And yet, few churches that I know who are really strict on everything's a command practice this or even think it should be practiced. The same thing, like, the churches I grew up in, very strict, always looking for the command, and yet none of them foot washed. And Jesus told us to do that just like he did. But we consider that to be descriptive because in an era of sandals, foot washing was a thing, but it'd be super weird in an area, in an era of shoes. Okay, everybody with me. Description, prescription. We're doing this all the time. All kinds of churches across the board are always making descriptive or prescriptive choices as you read the Bible. Just because a story is in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is suggesting we emulate that story or that the Bible or God is condoning it. Abraham had multiple wives, but nowhere do we assume that God is condoning him having multiple wives or suggesting that we emulate it. Often, the Bible is including a story for the exact opposite reason of us following suit. Many times it wants us to think about something, to come to some realization about God. Most people see the Bible as a moralistic grab bag. You flip it open and you're like, this is the moral lesson that's going to make me a successful Christian. And it's going to make me a good person and it's going to make my life happy. Flip it open, find a rule that will make you have a successful life. That's a dangerous way to read this book. And if you read the book that way, you're going to start to twist descriptions into prescriptions, which happens all the time in our culture. Uh, politicians all the time quote a passage, and I'm like, you just took a description, you turned it into a prescription, and you made it about America when it has nothing to do with that. So how do you tell if the text should be prescriptive or descriptive. <laughs> like, that's an important thing, right? We need to figure this out. You have to understand the big picture of the Bible, and then you have to understand how the small section you're reading in light of the big picture story the Bible is trying to tell fits together. This is a reason that you go to seminary, right, to study scripture, and it's not just like, ah, oh, you know, I opened up the Bible one day, and I think I know what I'm doing. Like, it's going to take a lot of thought and effort and work. This doesn't mean that you can't read the Bible, that you can't uh, get stuff out of it, but if you really want to be careful about your text, it's going to involve maybe really studying that passage instead of, like, quickly flipping over it to the next one. If you really want to get what's going on, it's going to take us meditating on these texts, really thinking about them and pondering them and saying, how does this fit into the big story? And is God trying to tell me something prescriptive here or something descriptive? So what's the big story of the Bible? God created men and women to rule and reign over his creation in his name. He called them image bearers, literally representations of his divine presence and power. He created them to guide the world towards more abundance and life. 
In Genesis 1, he creates humanity, he creates the world, and he starts this beauty and this abundance and this life, and then he creates humans to multiply it. Humans, though, deceived by dark forces, decided to rule for themselves instead of to rule in unison with God, and the result was catastrophic. God immediately began to work to restore the relationship between himself and humans, to get humans back on the throne of the world, working with him to bring abundance and life. And here's what he did. He promised a special person who would come from a special people who would restore the relationship between God and man. He chose the special people, the Jews, to be the special platform to bless the world by restoring humanity's place as God's image bearers over the world. And men and women kept rising up and giving us the hope, like, maybe this is a special person coming from the special people, and he's going to be the one, she's going to be the one to restore the relationship between God and man, and they'd be going along, and you're like, mm, look at Moses, man, he might be the one, he might be the guy, and then he'd fail. And then it'd be David, and you're like, look at that guy, man, he might be the one, and you look at Esther, you know, you look at Deborah, you're like, they might be the one, they might be the one, and they fail. And so, men and women kept rising up and kept failing, so God sent his son Jesus God and man in one person to be the ruler that we couldn't be. He went to the cross to pay the ransom to the dark forces to redeem humanity who had sold their soul to the darkness. And on the cross, he was crowned king of the world. He rose again, defeating death and declaring a new kingdom. A kingdom that you and I can be a part of right now, even though it's not fully here, he's not yet fully reigning. He says you can start living as kingdom people right here, even though you're in the kingdom of death. And so we live anticipating the kingdom that's coming as kingdom people because we know he's coming back. He beat death. He's going to take us through death, and we're going to live in a kingdom of life and love. That's the big story of the Bible. When we read a passage, we have to figure out, how does this fit into that big story? And is it a prescription about what it means to be kingdom people? Or is it a description about where humanity was at a certain point in this big story? When we read an individual passage, we have to weigh it in light of the big story. What's the context of the book that the passage came from? What's the context of how that book fits into the big story of the Bible? This is a lot more work than just flipping open your Bible, reading the verse of the day, and saying... I'm going to live that. Like, that's good, but that's starting point. If we want to be students of this book, we have to take it to the next level. We have to do more than just look for moralistic rules to follow. We have to understand how the Bible is designed to be read. Now, let me give you an example of what happens when you read this book wrong. In Tennessee, I had some friends growing up who didn't celebrate their birthday. Um, and I'd be like, I'm having a birthday party. They're like, we don't do birthdays. They're like, our birthdays aren't celebrated. We don't have birthday parties. And, uh, and they kind of acted like they were better than me because of it. You know, like, I don't celebrate my birthday. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, because of the Bible, obviously, you heathen. You know, like, how dare you celebrate your birthday? And they'd flip open their Bibles to Ecclesiastes 7.1, where it says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death is the better Better than the day of one's birth. And they say, obviously, you shouldn't celebrate your birthday. You should celebrate your death. That's when we should celebrate. Um, right? So that's why you shouldn't have birthday parties, right? And the Bible clearly tells us funerals are better than babies being born. Is it, though? That's gross. Like, if that's what the Bible is trying to tell us, that's gross. We celebrate a birth. We don't celebrate a death. 
What's the context for this verse? Well, this book is about a depressed author. Some people think it's King Solomon who finds pleasure and power to be unable to satisfy the deepest longings of his heart. He says, I know there's a hole in me. Big picture story. There's a relationship between God and man that's been separated. And he says, I'm trying to fill it with pleasure, and I'm trying to fill it with power. I'm trying to fill it with success, and nothing satisfies me. And he waxes eloquent for several chapters about what people really need and how our pursuits don't give us what we really need. And he ends the book like this. This is what he says at the end. This is what life is all about. Have a healthy relationship with God. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. You're like, oh, that's how it fits in the big story. But if I pull out one verse out of that, all of a sudden I don't have birthday cake or birthday presents anymore, right? Pulling one verse out and building a principle about not celebrating birthdays from it is ludicrous. Yet, this is how hundreds of thousands of American Christians read their Bibles. And if it's not careful, if I'm not careful, that's the way that I preach the scriptures. That's the way I think about the scriptures. That's the way I approach the scriptures. So now brace yourselves because now we're going to read some verses that are not comfortable to read. We're going to talk about whether they're prescriptive or descriptive. Um, so everyone bracing yourself. Okay, here we go. Perhaps one of your friends have brought up these verses when you say, hey, I'm checking out Christianity. I'm just exploring Christianity. I'm thinking about maybe becoming a Christian. I'm learning about Jesus. I'm learning about... Al is like allergic to these verses already. I just threw him up on screen, and he's like, I can't take it. He's like sneezing away. Let's read just two of these. There's, a, there's about five of these verses that kind of make us uncomfortable in the New Testament. We're going to read two that I think are some of the most graphic. And just stay with me because we're going to talk about them. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Let your women keep silent in church. They're not permitted to speak. If they're going to learn anything, they should ask their husbands at home. They shouldn't ask questions or talk in church. 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15. Yeah, nobody stoned me, okay? We're going to talk about this. 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman, she was deceived. She became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved if she bears children, provided she can continue in faith and love and holiness and stay modest. Um, you just do a quick Google search and be like, does the Bible hate women? And these verses will come up every time. And you'll have somebody writing a blog post about them who has missed the big story and has started to draw prescription out of what I think is description. But many times, as pastors, as church leaders, we use these verses in a way that is not keeping in line with the big story. So, like I said, there's about five of these really troubling verses in the New Testament, um, even though I think these are the worst. And so the question is, is the Bible sexist? Well, I think if these verses are prescriptive, then I would have to conclude, yes, these are just sexist verses. But if these verses are descriptive and describe the male-dominated society of first-century Roman Empire, especially in Jewish communities, then I can say, no, the Bible is not sexist, but it is descriptive of its time and place when it was written. Now, both of these verses were written by the Apostle Paul, and I don't think Paul would be freaking out if he teleported through time, across time and space, and came to church today, and he was like, what was Marissa and Darby doing up front? This is just blowing my mind. Now, he might be freaking out at cell phones and technology and the fact that we're projecting stuff on the screen, but I don't think that he would be freaking out to see women up front speaking. Oh, my gosh. 
Now, we don't have time to break down each of these passages, um, all the passages in the New Testament, but in general, here's some of the reasons that I think this is prescriptive and not descriptive. Paul says women shouldn't teach or speak. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 14. But in Romans 16, 1 through 2, he sends Phoebe to give instructions to the church in the most prominent city, Rome. And he lets Priscilla lead and correct theology in her house church. And churches often look at the New Testament through the lens of these five verses instead of looking at these five verses through the lens of the new, entire New Testament. When we read Paul's letters, we're reading one side of a two-sided correspondence. All the time, Paul was like, hey, I got this report about you guys, and so I'm writing in response to that. Or Paul says, you sent me a letter, so I'm answering your questions. Here we go. We don't know what people asked Paul what triggered his letter in the first place. It's like reading one side of a text chain. I think I have a text chain up here. <coughs> now, imagine that they wrote a letter or they wrote a text message, but we don't know what that is. And then you respond, haha, yeah, I've been busy too, how are you? Two responses that we don't have. Haha, sorry, no, no, no mischief, I'm afraid. What about you? We have no idea what response is. LOL, you're getting a pet? No idea what the response is. Crying face, crying laughing face. I'd love a lion too. Have no idea what the response is. Okay, see you later. That's kind of like what our New Testament epistles are like. Um, we're getting one side of the conversation and we're like, I don't always understand, lion? This guy's buying a lion? Is this lion, the Lion King, you know? Like, um, I don't know. Like, we only have one side of the conversation, and only having one side can be misleading. Now, imagine you only have one side, but the one side you have, you're like, God said that. <laughs> then you really are like, okay, so what is he talking about? It's going to take a lot of work, and uh, we're, we're going to have to read it very carefully. The Christian church, beginning with Jesus, had a radical view of the status of women. In the first century, women were not respected by any culture. They were considered to be property, both by uh, Gentile culture and Jewish culture. And Jesus demonstrated that he valued women and men equally as being made in the image of God. Luke, in the book of Acts, clearly indicates Priscilla's agency and interdependent relationship with her husband— she is certainly not Aquila's property. Aquila and Priscilla are co-workers with Paul. Um, she's certainly not considered property, as she's written about, as was customary in Greco-Roman society, but rather was seen as his partner in ministry and marriage. And all the times that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, the first time Aquila comes first, after that Priscilla precedes him every time, as if to say, oh yeah, she's the leader in this relationship or in this um, ministry. Often we judge the past by social standards of the present, and we fail to recognize how the teachings of Jesus many times were the very catalyst that moved us from the social standards of the past into the present. Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, when lived out by a community of like-minded apprentices, um, moves society away from viewing women as property into viewing them as co-laborers in his coming kingdom. And speaking of Jesus' ministry, it was funded by women. Not by men, by women. Luke 8, verses 1 through 3 says this. As Jesus traveled from one city and village to another, he spread the good news about God's kingdom. Remember, that's a big, big story. The twelve apostles were with him, 
Also, some women were with him. They had been cured from evil spirits and various illnesses. These women were Mary, also called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. There was Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator. So this lady, she's pretty, uh, she's married into political power. Susanna and many other women, they provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples could only do what they did because women were financially backing them. Now, these women didn't fund Jesus' ministry because they felt like he was doubling down on the patriarchal society that they grew up on. They're like, oh, I bet he's going to make things even worse for women. Let's fund that movement, you know? That's not what they said. They realized that the cultural result of his teachings would transform the world for them and their daughters. The teachings of Jesus elevated women in the entire world. The misuse of a few verses have been held up in an attempt to tarnish the historical fact that the teachings of Jesus have changed the way the world sees women. People who understand the big picture of the Bible use that as their platform to fight to end slavery, even as those who misuse single verses tried to preserve it. We talked about that. And just like there were people who understood the big picture of the Bible who fought for women's rights, many times they were fighting against people who fixated on one verse from the very same Bible. If you want to use the Bible to find a remote verse to support what you already think, you can. There's a lot of verses in here, and if you look hard enough, you'll find one that you can kind of twist into a prescription to support what you already think. But if you want to know what the Bible is actually trying to get us to do, you'll need to think deeply about the big story and how the passage you're reading fits into that big story. Okay, that was introduction. We feeling good? That's a lot. Yeah, that was like a seminary course right there. So with all that out of the way, let's look at the next verse in our series on relationships in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 21. We're just doing one verse today because the introduction was too long. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's all we have time for, one verse. But what a verse, right? That one verse required a long introduction. How should men and women act towards each other? Every relationship on some level, whether it's with co-workers or in your family, uh, in your neighborhood, it's going to be men and women in relationship together. How do, how do men and women relate to each other in relationship? They should submit to one another out of respect for Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. We are co-rulers over the world. Should women always submit to men? Men are often, and you can ask Darby if you have questions about this, men are often wrong. And when we're wrong, it's okay to tell us that we are wrong. Even the Old Testament does not require all women to submit to all men, nor does it require them to always be silent. Growing up, I often heard pastors say things like, men always have the final word. That's not a good way to live, and it's not biblical. If you're not married, I heard a pastor say when I was a teenager, I, as the male pastor, am the authority in your life if you're a woman. That's cultish and unhealth, unhealthy and not biblical. I remember being uncomfortable with that kind of talk, but I was always unsure of why. The Bible doesn't teach those things, but sexist pastors often misuse the Bible in order to teach those things. And sexist people can find shelter in our churches if we're not careful because the way we talk about things unintentionally paints women as inferior to men or as dangerous obstacles to men. 
Billy Graham was the most famous evangelist that America has ever seen. Um, and he was ambitious. If you read about his life when he was young, he was like, I want to influence this nation, and I want to influence the White House. Like, he had big dreams, big goals, but he saw with a lot of other evangelists around them that either they had a sex scandal and they lost their ministry, or they were accused of a sex scandal. Maybe they weren't even guilty of it and lost their ministry. And so he implemented what came to be known as the Billy Graham rule. He said, I will never be alone with a woman who's not my wife. And the rule worked. He avoided any public scandal. His reputation and influence grew. The list of presidents that he knew personally and impacted was long. Now, as I started in ministry, I was strongly encouraged by my male pastor mentors to implement the Billy Graham role, and I did. I was like, oh, that sounds like a good plan. I don't want to have an affair. I don't want to be accused of an affair. Um, so when I moved to Philly, I remember asking my church planting mentor, David, about it, and he said, he took a long time. You always knew David was going to say something you didn't like if he took a long pause. And so he took this long pause, and he goes, he goes, it's not a bad role, Alex, but he says, what you're saying is only men are worthy to be trained as disciples of Jesus by you and not women. He's like, is that what you want to say? I was like, no, obviously that's not what I want to say. Men and women as disciples together in community make up the church. But I didn't think about what I was saying without saying it. The Billy Graham role paints women as outside of direct communication with and influence on the key leader and as potential dangers that it could impede the work of God that the leader is doing. Women are dangerous. They may get me in trouble, you know. Um, the way that we unintentionally talk about women sometimes in church is unintentionally, I believe, sexist. The way many churches talk about women that were divinely created by God Often churches talk about them as divinely created to be under masculine authority rather than to be co-rulers with men. And that language in our churches many times attracts misogynistic, insecure men who like the idea that women are less than them. And as more and more sex abuse scandals have come out of the church, we begin to hear more and more stories about men who use the very scripture of God as they were physically abusing women belittling them or even assaulting them and telling them this is your place in god's design that's blasphemous now the bible doesn't say that all women are to submit to men neither does it say that all men are to submit to all women what does it say we should submit to each other it says men and women should submit to each other because neither gender are intrinsically superior to the other now, Paul will often reference the Trinity as he talks about relationships in the Bible, and he'll say you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all equally God, all equally divine, and yet they will submit and yield to each other. The Son repeatedly says, I'm going to do the will of the Father. Why? Because the Father is bigger than the Son? No, they're co-equals in everything, but the Son chooses to submit to the Father. They are unified, and they support and submit to each other. Now, our English word submit has a very dominant sound to it, like, you'll submit to me. Like when my dog is going crazy and he won't get something out of his mouth, and I take that little eight-pound dog who thinks he's as big as a lion, and I hold him down on the couch and I say, I'm the alpha dog, Hagrid, not you. I'm the alpha dog. And uh, that's the idea sometimes we think of as submission. That's not the idea here. The idea is of humbling yourself to allow someone else to help make you better. It's saying... I don't have to have the last word. 
I don't have to be in charge. I want to make you better, and you want to make me better, and so I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to work with you. Beth Ann Barr, a uh, professor of history at a Christian university, she said this, the narrative that men alone carry the authority of God is frightening, and it's not Christian. Women think all this is in the Bible because they learn it in their churches, but it's really a post-Second War construction of domestic city, which was designed to send working women back to the kitchen. And if you trace theology, we're perfectly fine with men and women working alongside each other until after the Second War and men come back and women have taken their jobs, and all of a sudden our pulpits start saying women belong in the kitchen and nowhere else. Once again, our theology has fallen prey to our American history, and I'm always asking myself, am I reading this passage like an American, or am I reading it like Paul was when he wrote it? Bad leaders always want their authority to be based on something other than the quality of their leadership and the depth of their love, and we have a lot of bad leaders who want their authority to be based solely on the fact that they are men because they have no leadership skills and they have very little love. Many people twist the big story of the Bible with a few minor verses in order to support the fact that they have no business being in authority. Healthy relationships involve mutual submission to one another. If you always have to be right, if you always have to be in control, if you always have to have the last word, you are not a person of love. What the big story of the Bible says about this, well, here's Paul again. Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female. He says, you know what you are? You are one in Christ Jesus. Our new identity is not around race or economic status or even gender. We are, designed, we are defined as members of Jesus' kingdom. That's your number one unifying identity the word Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, the special person that the big story said God was going to send to restore the relationship between God and man. And Paul is saying, your defining identity is not your gender, but your Jesus. People of love don't have to have the last word. They don't have to have the tie-breaking vote. They don't have to be in charge. They don't have to get their way. People of love just want to help others become the best version of themselves. That's what love does. Let's get busy becoming people of love. For coming into our world and dying to set us free from the darkness so that we could, we could roll and reign with you again. We could be in relationship with you again. God, forgive us for so often we, we get hung up on little things and we miss the big story. Men and women are co-rulers with you, and in your kingdom, you're calling us to roll alongside you and to set things right like you would, in our neighborhoods to love people like you would, in our workplaces and in our families. By living and loving like you, becoming apprentices of your way of life, we're rushing in your coming kingdom. God, help us to see the people the people we like and the people that we really don't like as image bearers of your person and your power and your presence. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.